Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an FT colleague who is a business and economics analyst on how the world's tech giants are creating a dystopia. I like that Europe is saying, no, you know, the rules of capitalism are structured by the taxpaying public, and these companies can tell us that they're special and that they need to do things in special ways. But no, in fact, we're going to make some moral decisions as a society. Do I think GDPR is some kind of silver bullet? No. That was Rana Faruha. Her new book, Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us, is a slamming indictment of the way big tech has infiltrated our lives on a macro and micro scale, from rewriting the patenting system to getting our children hooked on gaming apps. Rana came into the studio in London to talk about her book and why the tech industry needs to be regulated. So Rana, you've written a book which is talking about the economic, political and cognitive damage wrought by the tech industry over the past 20 years. That's quite a big theme. Can you tell us what damage have they wrought? Well, one of the things about my book is I've tried to break it into three different parts, the cognitive, the political and the economic. And you see books tackling one or the other, but they're actually all interconnected. And I'll tell you a little story about how I came up with this book, actually, that connects a couple of those dots. I had actually just started about two and a half years ago at the FT in New York, and my mandate was to write about the biggest economic and business stories in commentary from a U.S. perspective. And I started digging into the numbers, and I saw that this tremendous transformation had taken place since the great financial crisis, where the banks as a sector had really contracted in terms of their market cap. They were sort of on the uh, back burner. They would eventually rise again, as we know. But a lot of money had flowed very quietly into the tech sector, and in fact, If you look at the biggest offshores of capital, and that's a big question in the U.S. lately, who are these companies that are putting all this money overseas and how can we get some of it back? They were the big tech companies, IP rich, patent rich, tech rich, Google, Facebook, Qualcomm, Apple, all the usual suspects. So that was one thing. But then I came home one day after work and I opened up a credit card bill. And I saw all these tiny charges in the amount of sort of $1.99, $5.99. And I thought, my God, I've been hacked. And then I noticed they were all from the App Store. And I thought for a minute, who else has my password? And I realized it was my 10-year-old son, Alex. (laughs) And so I went and interviewed him. And what quickly became clear is that he was addicted to a variety of games, including FIFA Mobile. I think I know that feeling. Yes. (laughs) Perhaps you know someone Mm. in your family who is. And essentially, he'd been lured into this game by something that's known in the trade as a loot box. You get the game for free, but then in order to play well and keep up with the competitors, you have to sort of buy Ronaldo or get someone else on your team with more tricks. And little by little, he had been racking up these charges, not even really realizing what was happening. So as a mother, I was horrified. But as a journalist, I was fascinated. And I began digging into where do these technologies come from? And on this note, as it turns out, many of them come from the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab. Now, your previous book had focused very much on the finance industry, which obviously blew up in 2008. And you draw quite a lot of parallels between the attitudes and the market grip that the financial companies had in the run-up to 2008 with big tech today. Can you spell out those parallels? For sure. Well, the first chapter of my last book actually involved Apple. And the reason I was writing about Apple is I was looking around for the most Kafkaesque example 
of how the financial system was really not doing its original job, which was to lend people's savings to productive industries and create jobs, lend mortgages, et cetera. I was looking for ways in which finance had sort of become the tail that wags the dog. And what seemed the most extreme at the moment was the fact that Carl Icahn, the financier, owned about 5 6% of Apple. And this was a few years back. He had been tweeting that he wanted Apple to give back some of its cash hoard, around $300 billion or so, which, by the way, was about 10% of all of America's liquid cash reserves. So quite a large stash that he wanted them to give it back to investors in the form of share buybacks and dividend payments. And every time he would tweet, the share price would go up. At the time, that was sort of an anomaly. Well, now, (laughs) over the last 10 years, that's become the rule. We've just gone through two, three years of record buybacks in which the largest, richest companies in the world, most of them, again, those tech-heavy, IP-heavy companies, have essentially been offshoring cash. They've been compiling enormous bond portfolios. In fact, you know, in some ways even issuing bonds and underwriting bonds in the same way that, say, a Goldman Sachs would do. You now have an Apple or a Google coming in and using some of that spare cash to buy corporate debt. At the end of the day, this is really great for those companies and their share prices, but it doesn't do a whole lot for innovation. It's not doing a lot for the rest of the economy, and it's not going back into national tax coffers, which I think it's actually a big deal and will be a big deal in the U.S. in the 2020 election campaign because we're looking at an industry, perhaps more than any other, in which innovation has really been the result of direct taxpayer-funded R&D into things like the Internet, GPS, touchscreen, etc. So there's a lot to unpack in all of that, but I'd like to drill down into what are the specific harms that you think the tech industry is causing? Because in a way, I mean... All of us as users, including your son, would think that these are producing fantastic products. For the most part, they're free, they're efficient. Amazon, Google, Facebook all produce fantastic services, which we all love. Tell me, what are the specific ways in which they are harming us? Well, to answer that question, I'll go back and tell you a story. In the researching of this book, I actually read quite in detail the first paper that had been done on search by Sergey Brin and Larry Page. This was written in 1998 when they were still at Stanford. And it was all about what it would take to create a search engine. And it was sort of a template for Google. But at the very, very end, there was an appendix. And in one of the paragraphs at the end of that appendix, It had something about advertising and what it would mean if you were running a search engine that was being monetized essentially by targeted advertising. And what the pair said was that this was clearly a risk of abuse to consumers on the part of companies or, and this is what's really fascinating, even public actors. So way back then, the people that invented search and eventually would commoditize targeted advertising were aware that It was just waiting to be abused by any number of actors. And so I think that we have to think about that. This model didn't just happen. You know, we could have chosen a different model. In fact, Sergey and Larry actually advocated for a search engine in the public interest. And I think regulatorily, that may be where we're headed. Okay, I'd just like to try to put this in a bit of historic context as well, because when you get a revolutionary new technology coming along, then there tends to be a moral panic that somehow this is changing the whole rules of the game. So you had it with the telegraph, the telephone, the television. Every time we have people who are saying, well, this is capturing our attention, it's distorting our societies, the young are reacting in a very different way to the old, to all of these technologies. Do you think it's just a normal cyclical phenomenon or is there something qualitatively different about the internet and the big tech companies that thrive off it? It's a very good question. I think there is something qualitatively different. And I think 
it is about the fact that we are now the product. We are not just the consumers of a product. And, you know, you could argue, well, look, the FT, if you're holding it as a newspaper, there's advertising, it's directed at you. But what's different about the big tech is that we are being tracked at every moment. And that information about our movements is being used to sell us as a product. That, I think, really is different. And, you know, Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote In the Age of Surveillance Capitalism, I think gets at the moral problems of this really well. And she has about 700 pages laying out why it really is a different type of capitalism. Yeah, she is a previous guest on Tectonic and explained this very well, I think. Second objection to your thesis, I guess, would be competition has traditionally been the way to stifle or counter abuse. Why is it not going to work in this era? I mean, if I were Mark Zuckerberg, I think, frankly, I'd be a lot more concerned about the damage that a Tim Cook could do to me than an Elizabeth Warren. Why are we not seeing more competition between these companies? Well, that's also a very good question. And that brings me to the third reason why I decided to write this book. When I began to write about big tech in my column at the FT, I started hearing from a variety of different companies, small companies in different fields, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists that really had been shut out of entire areas that, say, a Facebook or a Google or an Amazon were in. And as I began to look at that, I really understood how the network power of these companies is demonstrably different. I mean, the world of digital technology, the world of intangibles really does favor large players that can ring fence the most data. And then at that point, You can do holdup. You can either acquire your small rivals, and Google and Facebook and Amazon have done record numbers of acquisitions in recent years. You can use, say, open source software to take their ideas but not pay them for those ideas. And I'll tell you a little story of an entrepreneur I spoke to, actually, who I met at a dinner party. And we started talking and happened to say I was working on tech. And he said, well, I have a story for you, patents. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, Google and Facebook and Apple and all the large tech companies have reshaped single-handedly the patent system in recent years. Because if you think about how patents have worked in the past, they tend to favor a small company that has one great idea, a biotech company, let's say, or perhaps a data analysis firm with a particular algorithm. One idea that they patent, and then that's the lifeblood of the firm. But if you think about an Apple, this is a company that makes handsets, and there might be 12,000 pieces of technology in there. They don't want to pay a lot for each of those bits of technology. So you have the lobbying power of this industry reshaping how the entire tech ecosystem is formed. That then leads to just black holes of innovation, where if you're not Google, you can't even play in this space. Or, and this is really particularly perverse, if you are playing in the space, you're trying to build what's called a talent farm, which the company would then buy. You're not really trying to create a company in and of an end. You're trying to create a group of people that would then be bought by a larger company. And I think that this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, that you're seeing a lack of entrepreneurial zeal in the U.S. You're seeing the number of startups per capita going down in the last 20 years or so as big tech has risen. One other phenomenon is the cyclicality of a lot of these industries. And you could argue, I guess, looking at the public markets, at least that there has been a bit of a crash. In Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The tech sector, the big stocks have come off quite a long way. We've had Uber and WeWork. The IPOs have gone pretty badly or not happened at all. Do you think there's a cyclical downturn now in tech that we maybe will be less worried about their dominant power because of this downturn? Well, I think this moment does feel very similar in some ways to 2001. And back then, you had a lot of euphoria for a couple of years. You had a huge buildup in debt. You had a lot of companies that just didn't make any money. I mean, back then, they may even have not even had such a great market share. At least now, they have market share, but they may not make money, Uber being a perfect example. The implosion of WeWork is another great example. I think some of this is the natural end of 10 years of really easy money, corporate debt. But I think part of it is also what is going to happen with these firms? Is their regulatory model actually going to survive? Are we headed geopolitically towards, say, a splinter net in which the U.S. is going one direction, Europe going another, China and some of the emerging markets going a third? If that happens, then one of the major advantages of these companies, which is the fact that they can fly 35,000 feet over nation states, goes away. And that has a material effect on their share prices. So, you know, does that have to do with Apple? Does that have to do with Elizabeth Warren? I would say both. Now, your book is very interesting because it comes up with a number of specific solutions to these issues. So let's go through some of them. I guess there's a growing clamor to break up a lot of these big tech companies to shatter the monopolies that they have. Do you think that would help? I think break up big tech is more of a political slogan than an actual solution. I think that we're headed towards a model where tech is going to be looked at like utility. And I think railroads are really the analogy there. If you look at how the railroad industry began, a network, right, creating an entire new industry and entirely new geography. You know, if your railroad line didn't go to your city, then you were in trouble. That city failed. And there's some wonderful examples, actually, of railroads like the Southern Pacific building track until five miles outside of L.A. and then telling the city fathers, hey, if you want your railroad line, you're going to have to pay us an extra $50 million. Well, I hear big tech doing that all the time. You know, there are a number of lawsuits, actually, that have been filed in the EU and U.S. courts, small companies saying that they've been disappeared from these ecosystems because they didn't want to play ball. So very similar analogy here. I think, though, that there's also some analogies to the financial sector. So nobody wants a system in which one single player can own the network and play within that network and thus have an advantage in terms of information. You know, you never want there to be a huge information asymmetry in a transaction. So I think about the financial sector and, say, the way in which commodities trading goes. So you remember a few years back when Goldman Sachs was on the front page of the newspapers because of aluminum hoarding. And the idea was that, all right, you're the biggest aluminum trading platform, but you're also buying the raw material. And they were getting round rules about the idea that they should have to let go of that aluminum every now and again. And instead of selling it back into the market, they were just moving it with a forklift sort of six feet, six feet away. And, you know, clearly there are rules that people can make loopholes around. But I think this principle of you can't both be a platform and be the biggest player on that platform. There has to be some kind of regulation. So there's a problem inherently with, say, Amazon creating the market and also being the biggest player in that market. Indeed. And this dovetails with another real issue in the U.S. political economy in particular, which is lobbying. I mean, one of the reasons that you're seeing Amazon under fire, not just from smaller businesses or retailers or consumers, but from big businesses like Walmart, for example, 
is that they're trying to own the entire ecosystem of government procurement. Now, why are they doing that? Because they know they can't get into China because Alibaba already has that market. So absolutely, I think that there are going to have to be some limitations on these players. Now, the second area I'd like to focus on is the idea that Facebook and other social media companies are postmen, not publishers. So under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, they are not held liable for the content that they are posting on their sites. There have been some people who have argued that this should be revoked altogether, but that Mm. in itself creates problems. What do you think about this as an issue? This is perhaps the thorniest issue out there, I think. So if you go way back to the mid-1990s when these companies were sort of, you know, two people in garages, maybe it made sense at that point that you wouldn't want them to have to hold liability for everything that was said and done. But when you think about them as what they are, which is the world's largest advertising companies, let's face it. I mean, and we know this all too well. They've eaten everybody else's lunch in the last 20 years. Google, Facebook, and increasingly Amazon are really big advertising firms. It's hard for me to think that they shouldn't have some responsibility, given that their model is simply a hyperdrive model of television or newspapers or other sorts of digital platforms. The question is, where do you put those limits? The truth of the matter is that these companies are not publishers existentially. They're not used to thinking about news judgment. Frankly, what they're doing right now is hiring a bunch of 20-somethings that have relatively poor news judgment and making decisions that have greater or lesser controversy associated with them. I think, again, if we could separate platforms and plays in some senses, I think that that would make a big difference. If these companies were simply networks and individual publishers, perhaps, were taking more responsibility but also more profit when they're working within those platforms, that could be one solution. But you're seeing different nations going different ways, and that has to do with the moral choices that are being made around surveillance capitalism. Now, you're talking about different regions, countries going different ways. I mean, one clearly that is going a different way is Europe. It introduced the General Data Protection Regulation last year, trying to create a new kind of data economy. Is that a good way to go, do you think? Um, how should we best view the data economy and what role can regulators and governments play in that role? Well, I like that Europe is taking the lead on regulating these companies. I like that Europe is saying, no, you know, the rules of capitalism are structured by the taxpaying public, and these companies can tell us that they're special and that they need to do things in special ways. But no, in fact, we're going to make some moral decisions as a society. Do I think GDPR is some kind of silver bullet? No, I don't. And in fact, I'm actually more in favor of some of the new rules that California is coming up with. It's actually tougher. Some of the California digital protection laws are tougher. They're also more about transparency. There's a lot about GDPR that really isn't all that transparent and it's quite complicated. And that could potentially favor the largest players because they have the big legal teams. The thing I like about what California is trying to do, it's almost going back to Adam Smith in some fundamental way. You know, what do you need for capitalism to work? You need a shared moral framework. You need equal access to information on both sides of the transaction. You shouldn't have huge asymmetries. So Paul Romer, for example, the Nobel Prize winner who's working on some of these issues in California, says, if the small print of what can be done with your data is too complicated for anyone to understand, that's not transparency. These companies should be able to say in a couple of simple sentences, if you click here, we will not only share your data internally, we're going to share it with these other 150 companies. And when you start to think about that, then it puts companies like, let's say, Apple, which has always declared itself to be the protector of privacy, in somewhat of a different light. Because in fact, that company was looped in earlier this past year into a data sharing scandal with Facebook. Apple didn't even know it was sharing data with Facebook across a number of apps. 
Now, your biggest idea is perhaps that you call for a digital new deal. What Mm. does that look like? Well, I started with the fundamental issue, which is that we're moving towards a world of intangibles. We're moving towards an economy in which value is going to be held not in factories and in widgets, things you can touch and hold and smell, but in data and IP. So if you believe that, which I think most experts do, then you have to find a way to capture the wealth from that economy. The problem is that intangibles can fly wherever they want to. Patents and data can live wherever it's best for a company to put it. That leaves the individuals who are creating that data, which is being monetized, in a tough spot. Now, one of the things that people have talked about, and a lot of people in the labor movement are quite interested in the idea, is a digital tax and a digital dividend. So I, Rana Faruhar, I'm online. I'm searching for a birthday present for my son. I'm planning a vacation. I'm corresponding with my husband. Google knows everything about me. It's selling all kinds of information based on the back of that. Should I not get a check in the mail from Google that gives me some percentage of that revenue? Well, maybe. But the thing is with data, discrete data actually doesn't have that much value. It's when you start layering data and not just in my own consumption habits, but in what I do with my money, my health care everything that I'm going to be doing around me. You know, we're really only talking even in this conversation about the consumer internet. In fact, all of these issues of surveillance capitalism are going to expand exponentially in the next 5, 10, 15 years as we move to the internet of things. And this table that we're sitting at has a chip and my shoes have a chip. And so how do you capture that wealth? Well, I think that one way to think about this would be to use an existing model, states like Singapore, Norway, Israel, The government takes stakes in private companies, particularly those that are monetizing government-funded research or are using, say, taxpayer data. There could be some sort of a fund set up. You might have the fines, uh, the privacy violations from these companies going into that fund. It could be used for infrastructure projects. It could be used to, say, bolster pensions or education. And that way you would have a little bit of a rebalancing between the public and the private sector in an era in which intangible rich companies are really supranational. They're just simply not bound by the rules of nation states. Now, the politician who gives the impression that she's read your book, even if she hasn't, is Elizabeth Warren. (laughs) I sent her a copy Uh, a few months ago. (laughs) um, Do you think she is exactly the kind of person who would implement a lot of the ideas that you're talking about? I think she has the potential to be that person. So far, Warren's platform has been more about wealth tax and redistribution. But even on the left, I think that it's going to be a real political wrangle to figure out, all right, we need to capture more in tax. States need more in their coffers in order to be able to do the sorts of things that the private sector wants them to do. But do we tax income? Do we tax capital? Do we tax property? Who gets taxed? How do they get taxed? You know, all this is very, very political. So perhaps thinking of this larger state fund model could be an interesting one. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Verona. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon and Persis Love.